You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning. We are live. All right. Good morning. My name is Keith. I'm one of, the pa- one of the pastors here today, and it's my privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, as I talk about myself as a pastor and as Keith, what I'm doing is communicating to you my identity. I'm saying, hey, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I'm Keith. And what we're going to be dealing with throughout this month is the topic of identity. Identity drives so much of our lives. If I look at my own life and I think about the way I identify myself to others, I'm a Christian. I'm reformed. I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm a Sparrow. I'm Keith. I'm an IT manager. The list goes on and on and on as we talk about our own identities. You think of your own. You are a child of God, or you are a redhead, or you're a blonde, or you're a Cubs fan, or you're a Cardinals fan, or you're a Catholic, or you're a Protestant Identity consumes so much of our hearts and lives. And how we define ourselves has become a crisis point in our generation where there are 10,000 different ways people identify themselves, whether it be their interest in sports, their interest in politics, their interest in um, movies, everything you can imagine from their sexual preferences to their food preferences to their their nationality, their language, and so often we let those identities separate us. Well, you're a Cubs fan. I'm a Cardinals fan. We can't even be friends. That's, that's a joke because most Cubs and Cardinals fans love to provoke each other. So they're, they're, for, they're frenemies. But if you say, well, I'm a, I'm a basketball fan and I'm a baseball fan, or if you're really, really absurd like me and go, I'm a fan of soccer, and they go, or I'm sorry, football, which is what I grew up learning Everybody from Mexico, my wife's like, you mean soccer? I'm like, no, football, soccer. You know, you can make some, uh, there's some identity issues there as well, right? Identity is important and it is a biblical reality. God speaks a lot about the identity of his people. So it's important we get this right. And what's also as important is if we get identity wrong, great damage happens to our own souls and to those around us. Because it is a biblical reality, when sin twists it, damage is done and great suffering occurs. When we minimize the identity of others based upon their skin tone as inferior to us, great evil is caused. When we minimize others because of their language or their accent as less than us, great suffering occurs. So identity matters in this world, but identity for Christians is infinitely important because of what God's word says to those who have put their faith in Jesus. That is, the Bible defines many ways that a Christian's identity changes in significant, miraculous, and amazing ways, guys. What we think of our identity as a Boy Scout, IT manager, um, foodie, has value. Don't get me wrong. It does, and it defines our life. But what God thinks and what God says of our identity has infinitely more value 
and value because it is true and it's eternal. It's always going to be true. So what we're going to do this month, we are going to be looking at the theme of identity in Christ. What does the Bible say about the identity of, identity of those who've put their faith in Christ? And what does it invite those two who've not put their faith in Christ into? We could spend months dealing with this. We're going to have five sermons. And we're doing this because this matters. We've just talked about gospel fluency and how to speak the gospel. But now we're going to drill down into how the gospel speaks to us as well. So I want you to get this. During the next five weeks, Nick is on his July sabbatical. I'm fighting really hard for Nick to stay on his July sabbatical because he offered to preach this week. I said, no, no, brother, you're not preaching. Have your sabbatical. We do this at New City for a couple reasons. This gives Nick a time away. And it's his preaching sabbatical. It gives him time away from the pulpit to be able to rest, to recharge, to be investing in things as we move toward August and students coming back. It also gives the church a time to hear from other voices, other men in the church who are preaching the word, who will bring a different perspective and yet the same gospel to us. And why is this important? It's because the gospel is not just what Nick and Keith say. The gospel is timeless, eternal truth that as other people preach it to us, we can hear anew and afresh the eternal truths of God and have our hearts and minds shaped and our lives transformed through it. So it's important we hear this from others as well. And as we walk through this, I get to start. So that's our introduction to the identity in Christ. That's what we're doing the next five weeks. We'll have a variety of different preachers. I look forward to hearing from them. But this week, I get to speak about our identity as adopted by God. Adopted children of God. Guys, adoption is awesome. Praise the Lord. Now, I want to intro just a little bit about what adoption is. Because, um, spoiler here, we adopted. For those of you who don't know, my son Alexander here, my wife and I, Claudia and I, adopted our son. Some of you were actually at the adoption, and a lot of this is old hat. But for many who aren't, adoption is this nebulous thing that happens. We know it's legal. We know courts are involved. But what is it? Right? Adoption is when someone chooses to make someone who's not directly related to them into their child legally. In every way, this is a commitment for life. You cannot unadopt someone. This is shocking. This is a legal commitment for life. Claudia and I had to go before the judge in a day we're waiting for this giant snowstorm to come. And we're driving down there like, we might not get back, but this is happening, right? We're going to make this happen. And when we got there, we sat before the judge. We have to go under oath. And he says, are you going to commit to care for him, to provide him shelter, to provide for him until he's age 18? Are you going to give him a right of inheritance that cannot be voided if you have biological children later? Are you taking this boy as a son that you will love and cherish and protect the rest of your life? We committed to that wholeheartedly with joy in our hearts and smiles on our faces. Praise God for the opportunity. And in the end of the process, in every way that matters, Alexander is now our son. And we are now his mommy and daddy. 
This doesn't make light of his previous identity, but this is his new identity that's going to echo through his entire life and define it in ways that we cannot imagine right now. He is no longer Alexander Baby last name. He is Alexander Sparrow. That's right. Guys, I want us all to get this. His mommy and daddy changed. We changed. Adoption changed everything in his life. Every bit of his identity of his life was changed, was transformed. Now, believe it or not, the Bible speaks of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as adopted as well. The same concept of adoption that we have in our culture, believe it or not, is really old. It's spoken of in the Bible in Abraham's time. Because before Abraham had his son, he almost had to adopt Eleazar, his servant, as his heir. But God broke in and provided his son of his flesh. So adoption is old. It's in the Old Testament. In fact, Israel is talked about as the child of God. In Hosea, in Isaiah, in many places, adopted child of God. And, forgive me, the Bible speaks in the New Testament as those who put their faith in Christ as adopted. Not only members of the household of God, but as adopted children of God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to, see, we're going to be looking at Galatians 4, 1 through 7 this morning. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. We're going to see three points here. Christians are adopted by God the Father through the work of Christ to be the children of God. If we could, let's stand this morning out of reverence for the word, and I'll read Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. Our first point this morning, as I said, is going to be looking at how we are adopted by the Father. We are adopted by God the Father. What we're going to see as we dive back into this text, and we read the whole 1 through 7 for context, but we're really going to be looking at 3 through 7 this morning. Um, Verse 3 speaks about how we were before adoption. Verse 3 speaks about, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. What Paul is saying here is what we sang earlier, what we prayed, what we proclaimed. Apart from God working to adopt us, we were slaves to sin, slaves to the things of this world that we thought would nourish us, thought would would bless us, and we became slaves to them. Whether that was pride, whether that was deceit, whether that was food, whether that was any number of identities we claimed, Those identities claimed us. In Paul's day, it was pagan worship. It was was innumerable sins that enslaved and bound them. 
Uh, Other places, Paul speaks of not being slaves to sin or slaves to the elementary principles of the world, but being dead in our sins and trespasses, as being in darkness and needing the light of God to come in. The point that Paul is making here is that before our adoption, we weren't these cute little children that are just like, we love you, Jesus, come for us. We were instead far from him. Guys, in my life, I was lost this way. I was lost for years. I came to Christ at age 19. I came to faith in Jesus at age 19. And for the years before that, though, I was exposed to the Catholic faith. And I had friends sharing Jesus with me. I want to make that clear. I had Christians in my life sharing Jesus and praying for me. And I still would reject the gospel. Guys, I was obsessed with paganism and the occult. This was 1999. I was obsessed with Y2K and... All kinds of crazy stuff. And my eyes were blind. I could not see the goodness of God. It took God changing my heart for me to desire him rather than the things of this world. I was enslaved by the things of this world with chains I could not see. I thought I was pursuing freedom, but I was just enslaving myself more and more to lies, self-deception, and destruction. But when God changed my heart, I began to seek him. Not because I found God, but because he acted to find me. And that's what Paul is saying in this text. And I wanted to slow down for us to see that. It says, when we were children, we, in, we, uh, in the same way also when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But, but God, Paul loves this but. Some of the biggest butts in the Bible are Paul's. Forgive the crass. It's not supposed to be crass. I'm sorry. I just realized that. (laughs) Paul uses transitions really well. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul does not say, but those who are enslaved became free. He says, but God intervened. God worked to take those who apart from him could not know him. Instead, he injected himself into history. God the Son became man to redeem children for himself, to redeem enemies for himself. God takes the initiative to seek and save the lost. He reaches out to those not seeking them, seeking him and calls them to himself. Now, there's this phrase he uses here. He says, the fullness of time. When Paul uses this phrase, he says it in different ways. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And what Paul is referencing here is there's a point at which the time was fulfilled. In other places, God, uh, he says it differently. But the point here is adopting a people for himself to be God's children was always God's plan A. The Trinity, we're going to deal with the Trinity today, not in great depth, but the reality is the Trinity is intimately involved in our adoption, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three and one, triune unity, all of the same substance, yet three indistinct people. And that's a whole sermon series we're not doing right now. But our triune God was intimately involved in this. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, that even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We are adopted by the Father, and this was always God's ultimate plan and purpose from before the foundation of the world. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity yet unity, the Lord was always purposing to save a people for himself, to take people who are enemies and make them his children, to adopt them as God the Father. What does this mean that we're adopted by God the Father? Romans 8 speaks that we are fellow heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ. It speaks of how we are being transformed by God from those who worship the things of this world to those who worship the Lord and are they own, are his own. But being adopted by the Father in Romans also speaks about how we are being we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. We are awaiting a glorious presence, a glorious eternity in heaven with the Father. But being adopted by the Father also means in Ephesians 1 that he has prepared for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places for those who are his. So we're adopted by the Father. We're offered blessing and, and, and wonder and glory and eternity with God, right? This is what it means to be adopted by the Father, guys. And I want us to get this. Adoption happens when parents, when God wants you. God desires your heart. If we did not want to adopt Alexander, we didn't have to. We spent six years, my friends, striving, paying, getting blood drawn and doctor's visits and everything else. Six years to finally get selected to be his parents. We paid a lot of money to do this. We pursued this because we wanted our son. God himself planned this from the beginning God the Son, in heaven eternal, became man. We're going to deal with this more in the next point. I don't want to jump ahead. But God himself bled for us to be the children of God. That's what he paid. And it is amazing. He wanted us. We're not unwanted. We're not unwanted street urchins that have no parent. God the Father wants us. If you're hearing my words today, whether it's now or in the future on YouTube, God the Father wants you to know and love him. That's why he sent Jesus, guys. And here's the thing I want you to know as well. You're not only wanted by God, you are loved by God. Hear this. So often we jump into John 3.16 and we read it. We're like, this is great. It's my favorite verse. I'll put it on TV or whatever. Hear this for a moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Also means for God so loved you. That he gave his son to die in your place for your sin that you would know him. That is what the gospel says. God wants you. God loves you. God delights in you. God makes you his child. He adopts you if you're in Christ. And that changes your life. Take a moment here to let that settle in your soul. There are so many father wounds we carry. So many failures that we will do as fathers and that were done to us that wound us. 
Yet God, the perfect father, the loving father, chose to love us, chose to adopt us, chose to care us, chose to make us out his children out of love. Our God is love. Let that heal your soul of the broken fathers that we have and the failures of fathers that we have. Let that just dwell in you for a moment. God loved you so much, he died for you. God loved you so much because he wants you. He loves you, and he's going to spend eternity with you. He has plans we cannot fathom in our finite mind where we will rejoice and be glad in him for eternity. Glory, hallelujah, amen. Now, I've already touched upon this, our next point, because we are adopted by the Father, but we're adopted through something. We're adopted through the work of Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 5 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. The adoption that God accomplished, and he planned from before the beginning of the world, was accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. This adoption was not paid in cash or waited on in time until you could get something. God planned and designed and bled for us to be adopted by God. Now, Paul speaks very clearly about Jesus. And there are some interesting things here he points out. He wants his, the Galatian readers and us to understand. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. God points out here that Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul points out here, and God does through his word, Jesus was born fully man. He was born of woman. He didn't just come as a spiritual being. He was born a baby. Like we get the manger picture of Jesus, but if you're like me, very logical. It's like, okay, I see him in the baby. I see him at like age seven or eight in the temple, maybe 12. Then I see him as an adult. So I just jump kind of past those things. Guys, Jesus was a baby. And if you've been around my son or any number of babies in your life, babies are beautiful and glorious and wonderful and gross and nasty and disgusting. (laughs) And I am not degrading our Savior here. But I want you to get this. Jesus is God. I'm going to deal with that in a minute more. I've already talked about that. But Jesus was also 100% man. He had dirty diapers. He had colds. He probably spit up on Mary and Joseph more than once. Probably more than a dozen times. These are the realities of our Savior. He lived a life just like us. Jesus, we can sometimes make him into a mythical figure. I don't know why my brain isn't working this morning. We can make him into a mythical figure, but Jesus was fully man. And Paul wants his people to get that. He wants us to get that. Jesus lived just like you. He had the frailties of the flesh. He skinned his knee. He bled. And it wasn't just on the cross that he bled. He was fully man. Fully man. Fully God. Yeah, he also says he was born under the law. Jesus was born a Jew. Jesus in every way fulfilled the law. He was born on the eighth day. He was circumcised in the temple and given the name Jesus. He walked and lived a life of humanity and yet perfectly without sin. Tempted to every extreme yet without sin and rebellion against God. 
Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh to ransom us, to redeem those who are under the law, Jew and Gentile, so we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, I'm going to pause there for just a second. Paul keeps doing this. He keeps referring to all those who believe in Jesus as sons. Is Paul misogynistic? Thank you, Alice. Is he sexist? No, neither. He refers to all who believe in Jesus as sons. I heard this 10 years ago. I looked it up again to make sure it was still true. And this is why he does it, guys. In Roman times, only men inherited from their family. So if he said sons and daughters, all of his readers would say, oh, the boys got it made and the girls don't. Paul makes it very clear that's not the case. When he says, you are all sons of God, he says, you are all heirs, you are all inheritors, you will get all the blessing, all the glory, men and women, boys and girls, if you put your faith in Jesus, it is yours. It's not just for the boys. It's not just for the guys. He's not being sexist here. He is in his culture speaking a truth to the people that women, you get all the inheritance and all the glory and all the promises of God that men do. Praise God, amen. This is not sexist. This is, this is glory. He's pointing out the equality and value between men and women, the equality of blessing and inheritance. Paul makes it clear here in other scriptures that women are not second-class citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's right. They're equal in value and worth. And we, the scripture says it, and we want to echo that here. We want that to be lived out. So that is the reality. He says his sons, Men and women, boys and girls, the inheritance comes to all of us if our faith is in Jesus Christ. Now, how are the children of God redeemed? Paul doesn't go into great detail here. He speaks of the redemption that is accomplished through Jesus. But from the other texts, through Romans, through Ephesians, through, through the Gospels, we see that it is only by the sinless life and the atoning death of Jesus on the cross that we are set free from our sin. In fact, Paul speaks about how our sin was imputed, that is, given to Jesus, and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross, and Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. And in fact, Paul goes on to say, not only was our sin given to Jesus, his perfect holiness and righteousness was given to us, that it was imputed to us, given to us, know that we do not deserve it. So when God looks upon us, he sees the holiness and beauty of Jesus. That's the glory of the gospel here. Jesus' blood doesn't just pay for our sin. He makes us righteous and holy before God. The blood of Jesus, God's, God the Son's blood, is sufficient for all those who place their faith in Christ to be forgiven of their sins and have the hope of eternal life. One of, one of the greatest hymns that we still sing here at times. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we are adopted through the work, the life, the death on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the power that adopts us as God's children. But I want to point out real quick before we move to the third point, that all three members of the, I can't do it in that hand, three members of the Trinity 
are involved in our adoption. What do I mean here? Look at verse 4. In the fullness of time to come, God the Father sent forth his Son, God the Son. If you look at verse 6, God sent the Spirit of his Son, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts. Crying, Abba, Father. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God, all the persons of the Godhead worked to redeem us for himself, involved in our adoption intimately, adopted through the, by the Father through the work of the Son, the Spirit given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance until we receive it. So these all three people of the Godhead are at work to adopt us. The Father is adopting us through the Son, but we're adopted, given the Holy Spirit, for a reason. The the last point we're going to look at this morning is that we're adopted to be God's children. As the Scripture says, we are adopted to be sons and heirs. Uh, Other places it speaks out, we're fellow heirs with Christ to all of God's promises. In fact, the scripture says multiple times that we will receive an inheritance. There is an inheritance waiting for us. Now, this is where our minds can't fathom it because he gets an inheritance when we die. But God doesn't die. And Jesus doesn't die. So how do we receive an inheritance? This is a promise of God that he will fulfill. But it's not an earthly inheritance through death. It is a blessing of God to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It is a blessing that he will give us. Jesus tells his followers that he is going up to prepare a place for them in heaven where they'll be with him. He promises us so many blessings throughout the scripture that he will fulfill in this life and in the life to come. The promises of God are many for his children. And if we're adopted as God's children, loved and cared for, we'll be his for eternity to be with him. Now, I don't know if you did this as a kid. I'm guessing most of us did. If we still don't, we might still do it. My dad's better than your dad. Okay, who's, who's, who's done this before, right? Okay, got a few here. You sit this, this seems like it's more a boy thing, but you're like, oh yeah, well, my dad's stronger than your dad. Oh yeah, well, my dad's better than your dad. Oh yeah, well, my dad can lift up a box. Oh yeah, well, my dad can lift up a car. Oh yeah, well, my dad can lift up a tree. Well, my dad can lift up a mountain. You know, you go back and forth and back and forth. It gets more and more absurd. Well, if God's our father, we win. <laughs> Guys, my dad created the universe your dad tries to lift. Booyah. You know, it's done. It's done. You win. God, if God is our father, we win all the contests of whose dad is better games. And he loves us and cares for us in ways we cannot fathom now. But, make, but we will make us rejoice in eternity. God the father is a perfect loving father. And I don't want to ignore. That's all true. This is all true. But guys, we got a lot of suffering in our church. We have a lot of pain in our church. A lot of hopes that have been crushed. A lot of dreams that have been, shat- that have been waited. Or prayers that the answer has been no. A lot of suffering. How is our good father who loves us allow us to suffer? How is our good father who loves us and cares for us. If all that I said is true, why is all this bad happening? Part of it is sin, our own rebellion, but a lot of it is God's good and perfect plan. I I want us to remember 
one thing about God being the perfect father. And this has been helpful for me as we go through the pains we have over the years. And it is this, that God, first, God's main purpose is not to make us temporally happy for a bit by giving us our best life now. That's rubbish and heresy. His purpose is to make us holy. His purpose is to make us, as Ben prayed earlier, into, some of you aren't here yet, I apologize, from one degree of glory more in the image of Jesus Christ. God's purpose is to make us holy, that we may see him face to face for eternity. That's his primary purpose for us, is not our temporal comfort. That's a 21st century invention, for the most part. Most of human history, we haven't been comfortable. We didn't have AC. We were lucky if we had to eat. You know, we were lucky if we had food that wasn't bread every day or milk from the cow if the cow didn't go dry. We are so spoiled now. We think everything is about our comfort, but God wants something deeper for us. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be his children. He wants to live a life different so that we reflect him to the world around us and break him known. So when we suffer, we can remember that God's purpose is not just to make us happy, but that's only the first half. Second half is God is a good father. How often have us in our Christian immaturity asked God for something bad for us? Okay, how many parents have had their kid ask them for something bad for them? Okay, nobody? Nobody? Okay, a few here. Okay, um, you know, our former foster child who left us would love to poke at the outlets. All the electrical outlets. He would grab the cables and start pulling stuff. He almost smashed his head with an Alexa once. He would always go to the outlets. We'd be, no, we couldn't discipline him. You could only redirect him. You can't tap his hand. Nothing. It's foster care. He always wanted the outlet. He did not know what he wanted was bad for him. How often have we prayed, oh, Lord, if you just provided me the lottery so I could pay off my debt and give the rest to church? And God said, no. Have we been like, well, God, why don't you love me? And he's like, because that would destroy you. It would destroy your soul. Or we say, Lord, I really think this is the person for me. And God says, no, it's not. You don't know this person. Or, Lord, why am I in pain? Why am I suffering? Why is my dreams of, I got married at 29. Why is my dream of marriage not coming? Why is my dream of fill in the blank not here? And God's response is, I'm a good and loving father. And what I have for you is better than what you think is most important. And sometimes, I know these things are hard to hear, but sometimes God lets us have pain in our lives. And sometimes he doesn't deliver us from the pain for a while. Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh that was meant to humble him and point him to Christ. That in his weakness, Christ may be magnified. Yes, that doesn't make light of our suffering, but that God can use our suffering, our pain, even our death to bring his glory and make it known. And that what he has for us is better than our temporal concerns and desires. And that sometimes, I do want to point this out because so I mean, Alexander, so often we think God means no and he's saying not yet. Claudia and I had prayed for a child for 10 11 years, 10 years, and we strove after adoption for six. And I have literally talked to Nick two weeks before 
We heard about Alexander. I said, brother, I can't do this anymore. I'm getting old. I'm getting tired. I cannot keep jumping through all the hoops and having my whole life written down on paper, 50 pages deep, to just wait. I said, let me just pour into something else. And God, in his perfect timing, says, no, Keith, you might want that, but that's not what's best for you. Because I said, okay, God, I'm okay, not adopting. And God said, no, that's not going to happen. He goes, you might not want to adopt anymore. I do want you to adopt. So sometimes God's answer is not yet. Sometimes God's answer is yes, and sometimes God's answer is no. But he does answer in his time. And he is a good God who loves us, guys. He loves us in ways we cannot fathom now, but make us rejoice in glory and eternity. Now, we have a date in our household that we will celebrate every year. It is February 17th, 2022. And this is our forever day. Our forever day is the date Alexander officially became my son, our son. He's my son right now because he's crying. He's Claudia's son when he's very happy and cheery. I'll own that. I'm, Daddy's being loud is what's happening. Adoption is forever. When we're adopted by the Father through the blood of the Son, given the Spirit, adopting, adoption is a being a part of God's forever family. God has made us his own. As I said earlier, failed fatherhood abuse, neglect, physical, mental, emotional, sexual abuse. These things scar our views of fathers. And yet God defines himself as a father who will never harm his children. He is not like us. He does not fail us. And though we may have a skewed perspective on fatherhood from the world, from our own experiences. God invites you to come into his family and experience a perfect fatherhood by through faith in Christ. That God will love you and care for you in a way that nobody else has ever, and he will do it for eternity. His love is perfect. His care is perfect. And his discipline is perfect. God Jesus tells us God disciplines those who he loves. So even as God disciplines us for our sin, temporally, he loves us and does that to care for us. There is a caveat. There is a tie-in I want us to get. If we are adopted into God's family, that means we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That means that we are family. It's one of my family's favorite songs to do at the, at the weddings. We all dance. We are family. You know, kind of how white people dance in such a way it makes no sense to most everybody else. Um, yeah, it's terrifying, honestly. Sergio's like, yep. <laughs> uh, sorry for putting you in the spot there, brother. Um, but we are family. We are children of God, and we're called to live as his children. But the first thing I want to point out here as family of God is we are called to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the ways Jesus said that you will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. That when we love one another as Jesus followers, as the identity of Jesus being ultimate over Republican, over Democrat, over liberal, over conservative, over American or Mexican or Guatemalan or 
a Canadian or Chinese, whatever. If our identity is in Christ and we love one another in Christ, that will put off the fragrance of the gospel in a way this world cannot comprehend. Because if we have completely different ages, ethnicities, languages, uh, sports teams, everything else, if everything in this world tells us you can't be friends with that person, they're too different, and we say we both love Jesus, it magnifies Jesus Christ, my friends. Not only that, but if we live as his children, it means we treat each other differently. We love one another. We're kind to one another. But it also means that guys... You treat the daughters of God with respect and dignity. If you're saying, okay, this girl's cute on the dater, you treat her as a child of God who has perfect knowledge of not only your actions, but your heart. And ladies, the same time, God knows your heart toward the men. And he knows what you're thinking and how you respond. And he's guarding his sons as well. God is a perfect loving father And we are to live as his children. Now, everything I've said this morning has been a lot of head knowledge. I get that. I've been unveiling a lot of what Scripture says about God, about adoption, about what it means to be his children. But we cannot just stop at the head. Being a part of a God's family requires more than proper head knowledge. It requires our heads, but also our hearts and our hands. Now, what do I mean? First, if we talk, Jesus speaks of how the worst true worshipers will worship him. True worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. So first, I want to say, with our heads, we think rightly about God, about one another. So as we move into a point of application, what truths about God's fatherhood do you need to believe that we talked about today? Because just because I said it doesn't mean you believe it. What truths about God's fatherhood do you need to believe Or what aspects of God's fatherhood of you do you need to meditate on? Really think about deeply. Maybe that he's loving. Maybe that he's kind. Maybe that he's perfect. Is there a scripture you need to memorize or write down to think about throughout the week? To think biblically as God is your father. That he has prepared for you an inheritance. So we want to think rightly, but we don't stop there. This has been my my failure for years. I wanted to think a lot, but it also calls us to worship in spirit. With our hearts, we are to respond. With our, with our hearts, we are to feel. What reality that we discussed today, that you heard today, needs to impact your heart, not just your head? More, we possess more knowledge than possesses us. So what part of God's adopting you as a child needs to possess your heart, needs to drive your life? Second question, where can your heart be hard toward God when you hear the scriptures you heard today? How can you strive to respond differently? We have father wounds. We have pain. We have sorrow. We have unfulfilled expectations. And how can we just confess it to God and strive to to recognize that he is a perfect father who loves us? Perhaps this means that you need to pray and think. Maybe this means you need to talk to me or Nick or another person around you and just share what's going on in your heart. Confess with one another and pray with one another for healing and strength. And the last way we can respond with our hearts is uh, 
How does being a part of the family of God impact the way you feel about other Christians in your life? Guys, we talk about tribalism a lot in our culture right now, right? Well, them Presby's, they baptize babies. Oh, those Baptists, they do whatever they want. Oh, those EV free, they're too free. Oh, those, you name it. We're so tribal, in the, even in the church. And Jesus calls us for unity. He says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So what does it mean, this text being brothers and sisters in Christ, what does it mean if we're called to love one another in Christ rather than be infinitely tribal about tertiary things? So we want to first, with our heads, think right. And second, with our hearts, we want to feel right. But third, we got to do something with our hands. God doesn't call us just to internalize the gospel. God calls us to live the gospel, right? So what is God calling you to do in response to what we've heard today? Is there somebody you need to talk to about something about that you heard today? Whether it's the good news of Jesus, whether it's being adopted by God, whether it's God being the perfect father. Is there someone you need to pray for in your life that maybe you need to pray for them to forgive you? Maybe you need to pray for a heart that forgives them. Is there someone you need to reconcile with knowing that this saint, this person who professes Christ is going to be with you in heaven for eternity and your God is calling you to reconcile with them now? Is there some way that God is calling you to respond today in which he's asking you to live out your identity as a child of God in a way that shows the world that Jesus is who you ultimately love and worship? Our hope today is as we move into a time, I'm going to pray in just a moment, we're going to move to a time of reflection. I don't expect you all to remember all those questions I just asked, but I wanted to give you the paradigm of head, heart, and hands. Because as we take a few minutes to just reflect upon what God has said to you through the word today after I pray, just think, what do I need to believe? What do I need to feel? Or what do I need to do in response to this? So as we, uh, as Nick has said, that's the end of my sermon. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to move into a time of response. So let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you that you first loved us and acted before the foundation of the world to make us your own. Thank you, Jesus for your perfect obedience and your shed blood on the cross for our redemption. Thank you, Spirit, for being the guarantee of our inheritance, for helping make our hearts more and more like Jesus day by day. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your love and care that you are our perfect Father, Lord. And I pray that each person who hears this would in a very real way both believe and feel these truths, Lord. God, I thank you and praise you for your grace and mercy toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.